0: Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hi, I'm Artemis and in today's episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Jane Draycott about one of history's most infamous couples, Antony and Cleopatra, as well as her new book, Cleopatra's daughter. So Jane, welcome to Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming on to talk to us about your new book, Cleopatra's Daughter. I've really loved reading this book and I feel like it's given me a completely new perspective on ancient history, particularly women's uh, experiences and women's history within the context of ancient history. And I want to ask you lots of questions about that as we go along. But first, I thought you could tell us a bit about how you first came across Cleopatra Cellini.
1: Right. Well, thank you very much for having me on and thank you for your compliments about my book. I first came across Cleopatra Cellini. It would have been about... 14 years ago now I was doing my PhD, my PhD topic was about medicine in Greco-Roman Egypt and one of the things that I was looking at was the use of um, animal products in ancient medicine or in in ancient Egyptian medicine at this time and as you probably won't be surprised to hear uh, crocodiles being quite prevalent in Egypt at this time and quite specifically Egyptian as well uh, they were very popular in medicine. And so because I was researching crocodiles and the, the sort of place of crocodiles in Greco-Roman Egypt, I came across Cleopatra Cellini that way because she used the crocodile as something of a sort of personal symbol, uh, kind of almost a heraldic crest, I suppose you, you, you would, you know, use that comparison. And So I was very interested because I I wasn't really familiar with who she was or uh, what she did and it sort of snowballed from there really. So it started with a crocodile (laughs) and then ended 14 years later with with a book.
0: And there is a portrait of Cleopatra Cellini or what what some have argued might be a portrait of Cleopatra Cellini. Could you tell listeners a bit about that and how it came to be found and and why people think it might be her?
1: It's difficult when you're dealing with ancient people. Anybody who basically wasn't a Roman emperor who has hundreds of different portraits, all of which look very similar, um, it's difficult to pinpoint it, specific individuals. And so Cleopatra Selene, there are a couple of different portraits that could possibly be her. Uh, we, we have some marble ones from uh, Morocco and Algeria. We have uh, some smaller ones in in the form of um, cameos and intaglios on on jewelry, and probably the most famous one is a silver dish from Boscoreale, which uh, is very near Pompeii, uh, a villa that was buried in the eruption of Vesuvius in seventy nine C. E. Um, there was a whole load of silver treasure found in this villa, and one of the key items in this treasure trove is is a is a dish and in the centre of the dish is uh, a portrait of a woman and she's surrounded by a whole load of, of different imagery, so much imagery that it's, it's really quite difficult to understand what the artists were going for, it's like who could this be, what does this mean, there's so much here and there have been a few suggestions as to who she might be, she might be the personification of Africa, she might be Cleopatra VII. Also, she might be Cleopatra Cellini, and I'm inclined to think that she is Cleopatra Cellini because of all of the different bits and pieces that are, are there with her, because otherwise, how to explain them? And, and if it's Cleopatra Cellini, you can explain, oh, this is what all of these things are doing here, because they each refer to some sort of aspect of her, her life and her, uh, her personal history, her family history.
0: And I was really fascinated by this um, this bit of the description of this silver dish because I recently spoke to um, Dr. Emma Wells, who's just written a book about uh, cathedrals and like medieval cathedrals. And I've always thought that I was kind of fascinated by the skill of being able to read, as it were, and interpret buildings. And in the same way, you as an archaeologist and as someone who looks at the the material and physical remains of this period, of which there aren't necessarily like... Loads of other sources, and you have to. You're kind of get, often you're going on just an object. How do you even start to read and interpret things like that as an archaeologist?
1: Yes, well, <laughs> I that that's that's the question that we we constantly ask ourselves because there is this tendency perhaps to try and overinterpret things uh, and to think that there must be some sort of secret message, some sort of something behind whatever it is you're looking at beyond the obvious and it's it's interesting um, because it's something that we perhaps are not quite so familiar with today the the idea that there could be lots of puzzles and symbols and hidden meanings behind things we in in ancient art in in viking art uh in religious art in fact there is there is a lot of meaning. A lot of um things are are symbolic of other things, they refer to other things, and the idea being that if you are educated or informed enough, you'll be able to decode the message. And yeah, you 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 when you're looking at ancient objects, because ancient culture is in so so many ways very alien to us, I mean, we, we have a certain amount of understanding of Ancient mythology, for example, so you you can recognise obvious mythological figures. You know, Zeus has got his his lightning. He's got his eagle. Uh, he's usually got a beard, uh, for example. Um, so you you know you, you can make these these fairly straightforward identifications. But when when it comes to the the myths that are less well known, and when it comes to other sorts of historical or cultural information that is not so um well known it can get a bit trickier so when it comes to looking at pieces of ancient art there are there are lots of things that are quite straightforward you say oh yeah that is obviously the 12 labors of hercules for example but when it when it's things that don't quite look as you would expect them to that's when you start thinking well what could this be this doesn't quite fit with anything that i'm aware of but We also then have to bear in mind that we don't know everything. So much ancient literature has been lost, so we don't know every single possible um, version of any given myth. Um, We don't know every single thing that ever happened in ancient history. There are vast swathes of ancient history where we don't even know the, the, the broad brushstrokes, let alone the very small ones. You know, what year did this happen? We don't know. Never mind what day did this happen? We don't know that either.
0: Yeah, and it's a fascinating. I find it fascinating the kind of merging together of like different types of evidence and then building a picture from that. Saying, "Oh, we've got this little fragment of a hint of something in this in this written text," and then there's this, you know, something that was found here, and together these make up a picture. or They suggest something. That's so. There's so much. Well, obviously, there's so much skill in that. Um, I wanted to talk a bit as well about this. Um, You talk in your introduction about wanting to rescue some of these women that we're about to talk about today from uh, male historians over centuries who have painted a particular picture of what it meant to be a woman in ancient Rome or in um, Greco-Roman Egypt. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about that and and why you wanted to do that. But also I wanted to talk about how do you strike a balance between um, rightfully... Uh, recognising women from history from any point in history really their agency and their talents and their intellect but also um, always remembering that there's this context they're operating in which often was deeply patriarchal and repressive how do you strike a balance between those two things
1: I think I'm I'm quite lucky actually that at the moment I'm I'm not the only person doing this there there is a huge movement at the moment to try and Resituate women in ancient history, medieval history, in art history as well, and so that's it's very it's very nice to be part of that and and to 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 be one of one of many well in the in the main actually female um, historians uh, who who are trying to do this work and I I suppose part of it is you you look at. you're doing and you look you look for yourself or you you look for someone or something that you can relate to and identify with and so it doesn't surprise me really that for for many centuries if we're talking about the ancient world because the people who were doing the scholarship were predominantly men they were predominantly wealthy um, they cared about politics they cared about warfare so that was what they were looking at. These were the things that were considered important. And these were the things that if you were having a classical education in Latin, in Greek, you were looking at the statesmen like Cicero, like Caesar. And you you also didn't necessarily have the benefit of the sort of the range of evidence we have. I mean, you, you had the canonical literature that was in the medieval manuscripts, but you didn't have the papyri that had been excavated from Egypt. You didn't have the archeological evidence from places like Pompeii until the the last couple of centuries, people started really doing serious archeological excavation. And it's only really in the last half a century that people started doing it well and using science and being able to preserve what they were finding instead of just looking for treasure. And so today we've got a lot more evidence at our disposal which allows us to look for the people who were not the big names, who were not important in, in the sense that they, they were shaping geopolitical affairs. You know, we, we can now look at the ordinary people, at, at the women, at the enslaved people, at anybody really who, who, who was othered in any way. And I suppose the challenge there is... Trying not to be too um, optimistic about it, because one of one of the things that I, I tried to do in the book was recognise that Cleopatra Selene was in a very prominent position as uh, as a princess, as a queen, uh, but she wasn't. She was able to do that because in some ways she was uniquely equipped. She she was so important. She had so much prestige specifically because of who she was, who her parents were, who her ancestors were, and the situation that she was in at that specific point in time, being the product of uh, Cleopatra, of Mark Antony, being a, a Roman client queen. So she had opportunities available to her that other women at around the same time didn't necessarily have and so she was able to do different things but at the same time you do also have to be aware of things like the fundamental limitations of being a a woman in a patriarchal society, being a woman who being married was expected to have babies and the the dangers that ensue from that and Considering the age that she died, you know, around around about 35, it's it's highly possible that she died in in some way related to pregnancy or childbirth.
0: Mm.
1: And that's something that you you have to bear in mind as well, because that's that's so alien to those of us today who living in a sort of 21st century um, society with the NHS, with advanced medical care it's not alien to people in other parts of the world um but but yeah the the idea of a woman in her mid-30s dying in childbirth is not normal to us but it would have been very normal then and and so you, you can't you have to try not to be overly um optimistic and overly enthusiastic about it and and uh, attribute power to to marginalized people in antiquity that they didn't have but at the same time you 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 can't necessarily be so negative as to say they had none whatsoever and that that is so you have to strike the balance between uh too much and too little
0: yeah absolutely i mean just before we started recording i was telling you about how i'd studied classics as um for a bit and one of the modules that we did was called women in athens and rome and it was essentially kind of like um from start to finish it was awful. <laughs> like, it was horrible, really misogynistic, um, both culturally and, you know, in law. Um, so it was kind of, It was really refreshing to read this book because even though, um, of course, none of the stuff that I was taught in my s is necessarily strictly untrue, it was kind of heartening to see that um, women and perhaps it was only very, very powerful women like the one, ones we're going to talk about today um, who were able to... I don't know, carve out agency for themselves. Mm. Well,
1: you, you have to bear in mind as well that even today, if the only newspaper that you were to read was The Guardian, you would have a very different perspective on everything. Uh, women, say, for example, than if the only newspaper you were to read was The Daily Mail. Mm. So in in things like looking at ancient Rome, looking at ancient Athens, if you're only using a very specific type of evidence. So in the case of Athens, um, for example, um, Greek plays or Greek legal speeches, then you, you have a very specific, none, none of those involve women speaking for themselves about their own experiences. Whereas if you start using things like inscriptions, which tell you that women had professions and you know were artisans, um, that they dedicated things, under their their own uh, names to gods and goddesses that they consider to be important you'd have such a different perspective on exactly the same place and time.
0: Mm. Well without further ado I think it's time for us to get into the time traveling aspect of our conversation so Jane if you could travel back in time what year would you choose to visit?
1: Well I think I always wonder actually if I could travel back through time would I? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, for for the purposes of of this um, thought experiment, I would go back to the 2nd of September, 31
0: BCE. This is a really famous year in history in lots of ways, and I think I'm really looking forward to getting into it because it's like been kind of immortalised in legend and popular culture so many times. So it's going to be really interesting to hear the kind of um, a more historical version of events. But very glamorous and kind of thrilling nonetheless. Before we get into the first scene, could you tell listeners a bit about the context of where we are in um, 31 BCE? What what has been happening over the last 10 years that has led us to the moment we're about to visit in our first scene? So
1: what's been happening is the slow motion collapse of the Roman Republic. And different people will tell you that it started at different points in time. But what we're seeing in the, the 30s BCE is, is pretty much the, the final gasp, the death knell of, of the republic that has lasted for centuries. And what it comes down to is the system is broken. The political system no longer functions because it has been corrupted by individuals and their personal pursuit of power and status and wealth. And by the time we get to the 30s, we're talking really about two individuals in particular. We're talking about Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, who we would refer to today as Octavian. Although at this point in time, he's calling himself Julius Caesar because he's the adopted son of the famous uh, Gaius Julius Caesar. And he's using that name to, to sort of accrue the, the, the sort of benefits of, of that relationship and Marcus Antonius, who we would refer to as Mark Antony. And the pair of them, they both see themselves as Caesar's political heirs, and they have different ideas about how to to do that. And because both of them want to be the the dominant person within the Roman political system, and there can only really be one, they have gone from working together... In the wake of Caesar's assassination in forty four, uh, and they had a triumvirate with a third person, uh, Lepidus. But but really now at this point in time, it's it's come down to they they've marginalized Lepidus and, and the pair of them have been carving up the Roman world and they've they've been fighting between themselves. They they have they have both a political relationship and a, and a personal one because uh, Antony is married to Octavian's sister Octavia and while that was um, a political alliance and it was it was a good idea at the time for to sort of ally the two men it turns out gradually to be less positive for Antony because anything that happens in his relationship with Octavia and one of the key things that happens in his relationship with Octavia is that he begins a relationship with Cleopatra the queen of Egypt and so Octavian is able to present anything that happens in Antony and Octavia's marriage as a personal insult to him and more broadly to to Rome itself. So by the time we get down to 31 BCE, things have really come to a head and these two men are going uh, face-to-face, head-to-head in open conflict battle.
0: I always find it kind of funny that Lepidus doesn't really get a look in. He's like, it's like no you're not really as charismatic or as important as we are (laughs) exactly
1: but of course we say that from the benefit of hindsight knowing what happened knowing that lepidus would be marginalized but at the time i mean it it, that that's one of the interesting things about the possibility of time travel i suppose is if if you were a fly on the wall would lepidus have been as inconsequential then as as he is now you know the footnote to to history or would he have been you know uh, an extremely important prestigious person who can say
0: and could you tell us a little bit about Antony and Cleopatra and their relationship and how they'd met, because it is such a famous love affair and it's, um, it's important to know, I think, before we get into the, into the first scene.
1: Well, Antony and Cleopatra had known each other for a very long time, in the early 40s, uh, when Cleopatra was, uh, was very young, still a teenager. We believe that she was with her father, Ptolemy Twelfth, Ptolemy Alates when he was spending time in Rome. So they would have met at that point in time. They would have met subsequently when um, Antony was was doing military service in Rome and and, um, helping uh, Ptolemy XII uh, regain control of the kingdom. So they they knew each other at that point. They knew each other when Cleopatra was Caesar's mistress uh, and um, she was present in Rome. When Caesar was assassinated, um, she'd been staying there uh, with him and with their son, Caesarian. So Cleopatra and Antony were well acquainted for quite a long time. But it's not until uh, 40 BCE when their romantic relationship seems to have begun. And in many respects, there wasn't anything special about it. Antony had had many other relationships with many other women, including uh, in the East, very highly placed, politically significant women. So he probably didn't envisage it or they didn't anticipate it turning into what it did. And neither did she, because of course, she, she had had uh, a similar relationship with Caesar herself. So they met in 40 in a political capacity. Antony wanted support for his party and campaign in the East. He wanted money. He wanted resources, uh, troops, ships, that kind of thing. She was a client queen, so it was her duty to provide those things to him. And then after they had finished their, their sort of um, political discussions, they moved into sort of leisure and pleasure and banquets, and she invited him to come and spend the, uh, the winter in Egypt with her. He did, and then he left. Uh, he he uh, left her pregnant with uh, twins, Cleopatra Cellini, and her, her brother Alexander Helios, and they didn't see each other again um, for a few years, uh, three years or so. They met again, they recommenced their relationship, they had another child, uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus, and then towards the end of the 30s they, they were actually together full-time. Anthony uh, was, uh, was living in Alexandria with Cleopatra and his Egyptian family. So On the one hand we can see that as this very epic romantic uh, relationship on the other we can see it as a sort of um political financial quid pro quo kind of relationship and because we know how it ends we tend to view the whole thing i think through that through that lens um and as as we sort of go through um this this year we can talk a little bit about that a little
0: bit more. Well, that leads me on beautifully to the first scene. So thank you so much for, for explaining all of that important political um, context to where we are. So, so where are we in our first scene in 31 BCE?
1: What's taking place is a battle between the forces of Antony and Cleopatra on the one side and Octavian and his best friend right-hand man Admiral Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. So two two navies.
0: And if we were stood there what, what would we be able to kind of see and hear what would it look like? How how similar is this to a kind of modern naval battle?
1: What we'd be seeing would be Antony and Cleopatra's fleet blockaded by Octavian and Agrippa's. So although Subsequently, this battle was made out to be really important, really significant, a sort of pivotal moment in world history. It appeared in Roman literature, Virgil's Aeneid, for example. It appeared in monuments, art all over the place, um, coins, cameos, things like that. In actual fact, it's fairly unimpressive. It's it's. Uh, when we when we call it a battle it is really uh, a blockade that Cleopatra forced her way through and then left
0: so so yeah so she decides to leave halfway through the battle and why does she leave and and what is the consequence of this for the kind of outcome
1: well we have to bear in mind that the accounts we have of the battle are written afterwards in some cases a very long time afterwards and they are written according to what Octavian and Agrippa thought or, or wanted people to think about the battle. So as, as I said it's made out to be this really important, really significant, really fantastic victory by Octavian and Agrippa. We shouldn't forget Agrippa although <laughs> being that, that was part of Octavian's um, design was, was for him to get the credit for it. So it's, it's made out to be all of those things. For Octavian to be victorious, Antony and Cleopatra have to be defeated, and a big deal is made of how cowardly they are in in fleeing. Uh, Cleopatra fleeing back to Egypt with all of her treasure, that plays into a lot of anti-Egyptian, anti-Greek, anti-Ptolemaic stereotypes in this period of them being sort of weak and cowardly and craven, and obviously her being a woman and and not not equipped for, for military activity. And the fact that Antony went with her, that plays into Octavian's many years of, of anti-Antony propaganda and, and how he had become um, he become Greek, he'd become Egyptian. He'd gone native when, when he was spending time in the East and he was no longer the the um, successful manly virile Roman that he had once been. So the explanation that's given is, is that the pair of them Despite the fact that their fleet was larger and better armed, they recognised that uh, they they couldn't win and and uh, and they left. And because they left, the rest of Antony's forces acquiesced. Uh, they 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 surrendered because they, if they thought, well, our, our commander isn't here, why should we stay here? And the there is some suggestion in the literature, in Plutarch's Life of Antony, for example, which is. Is sympathetic to Antony in, in a way that a lot of other sources aren't necessarily. That Antony didn't mean to leave. He was confused about what Cleopatra was doing, and so he boarded her ship to ask her, and she she kind of kidnapped him. Um, So that there there is there is that that he he uh, he hadn't perhaps intended this to happen. There, what they wanted to do was break the blockade and then have this pitched sea battle. But what what happened really was they broke the blockade and then. they.
0: And based on, if we could just speak for a bit about what we know of of um, Anthony's kind of personality or what kind of man he was, how likely does it seem that he it, he would have left because he's, he was a coward? How, how likely is very that? Very
1: unlikely. Anthony is somebody who, he has a long history of being involved in military activity, right from when he was a very young man and he, he had a reputation as being a good soldier of basically getting down in the mud with his men and sharing their hardships and their their privations and being much more comfortable with with the sort of the coarse and crude um, roman soldiers than he was necessarily with the sort of highly placed um, elite he didn't tend to surrender he didn't tend to try and avoid conflict his military endeavors were not always successful his Parthian campaign had been a disaster But that wasn't because he was a coward, it was because it was badly organised and the Romans never really did very well when they were going east and attempting to go face to face with Parthia. So it's unlikely that Antony was fleeing out of cowardice and in fact once he realised what had happened, the first thing he tried to do was rally more troops and and go go back uh, to face Octavian. And when that didn't work, because he, the legions were no longer prepared to uh, align themselves with him, he had a nervous breakdown and uh, spent some months uh, living on his own in a, in a hut that he called um, his um, Timonium on, on the uh, the coast of Alexandria, just off the coast of Alexandria. And so he was so devastated by this, this whole chain of events and what that meant for him as... as uh, as a Roman, as uh, a Triumvir, as a consul, and what it, what it would mean for his future. So I think it's safe to say that, that he, he was... Uh, this was not what he had planned. And, and anyone actually, sorry, just, uh, just uh, anyone else as well, in this period, they would, they would put their money on Antony because he was the, the older, more experienced, um, much more military successful um, member of the, of the Triumvirate. If anyone was going to be a coward and flee, it was Octavian because he actually had done that previously. He he had he had avoided fighting by hiding in his tent and claiming to be ill and and uh, and things like that. So so people, the reason that they supported Antony was because they thought he was actually the 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 better man, the the better soldier. Um, and of course, that couldn't last forever.
0: And how kind of consequential is this? Is this moment? Is it? Was there a chance that the Battle of Actium could have gone differently and that um, the subsequent history could have gone differently if they hadn't left? Is that the thing that changed it all or was, this, was it always inevitable that Octavian would win this battle?
1: This battle, not necessarily. I mean, I think it, it, could, have, it could have gone either way. I mean, Antony's fleet was larger, it was, it was better armed, it was, it, but Octavian's were smaller and more manoeuvrable. So they they were sort of somewhat evenly matched there. Antony's forces were suffering from um, diseases um, and desertion because they because they were blockaded in both um, at sea and on land, and, and that's that's not particularly hygienic if you're if you're um, in one place for an extended period of time. But the battle itself could have gone differently, but as this is coming at the end of a decade of um sort of propaganda warfare uh, octavian had been based in the west he'd been based in rome so he was really successfully poisoning the well against antony with everybody uh whereas antony was in the east and so he he wasn't able to sort of be on the spot and convince people in person he was having to they were they were sending each other letters uh, across the mediterranean and uh that wasn't the the best way for Antony to attempt to salvage his reputation in Rome, and it was in Rome that it mattered because that was where the senators were. It was where the, the uh, all the politics was was happening. So it could have it could have gone differently. Uh, there there is uh, potentially some some alternate reality in in which uh, the Antony and Cleopatra were successful, in which. The Roman Empire did turn to face the East earlier than, than uh, the 4th century CE. Possibly we'd, we'd be speaking Greek uh, rather than, than a Romance language uh, or some, some version of Greek. Egyptian, maybe.
0: As I'm sure listeners of this podcast know, the ancient world lives on today in so many ways with physical remains scattered across our landscapes and traces woven through our languages, arts and politics. Our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, have been running archaeological study trips since their foundation in the 1950s and through these years of experience have developed a range of holidays which explore traces of ancient civilizations across the globe. From the evocative Neolithic monuments up in Orkney to the awe-inspiring temple city of Kanchipuram in Tamil Nadu. Picking up on the themes of Jane's new book, Cleopatra's Daughter, Ace anticipates a return to Egypt in 2023, with a luxurious cruise along the Nile on board a traditional Dahabiya. If you're inspired to make your next discovery, why not visit the Ace website at www.aceculturaltours.com. to see their itineraries on sale for next year. It's fascinating to think about. So kind of leading on from how you described Anthony returning to Alexandria and his nervous breakdown, I think that leads us on quite nicely to our next scene. So where are we? And and also what can we um, hear, smell, see um, in this place?
1: So we are... On the 1st of August 30 BCE, we are in Alexandria. We are in the Brocaon, that is the royal palace quarter. And we are in a room with Antony. He has realized that all is lost. All of his forces have deserted him. So this this sort of period is, These few days uh, are sometimes called the Battle of Alexandria, although there wasn't really so much uh, of a battle, a few skirmishes, but but basically all of Antony's remaining troops desert. Uh, They they abandon him. They they go over to Octavian and his forces. And even Cleopatra has abandoned Antony at this point. Um, She has been in the year, or, or just under the year since the Battle of Actium, Uh, While while Antony was out of action um, having his breakdown, Cleopatra has been writing to Octavian and trying to come to some kind of arrangement with him about um, turning over Antony to him, about abdicating herself in favour of her children ruling Egypt, so her her eldest son Caesarian, um, her daughter Cleopatra Cellini, her her younger sons as well, and Octavian has, because he's had other things to deal with, it's taken him quite a while to get round to Egypt, um, but now he's here and uh, Cleopatra does one final um, throw of the dice and she leads Antony to believe that she has taken her own life. And what she's hoping to achieve here is that by him thinking that she has taken her own life, that will spur him on to take his and that is that is what happens he uh believing everything is lost even the gods have abandoned him so according to plutarch um, music is heard the the night before and this is a sign that the gods are departing alexandria leaving antony and going over to join octavian so everybody's deserted him uh he decides that he's going to do the roman thing and fall on his sword he tries to do that he makes a mess of it and all that he really succeeds in doing is is disemboweling himself and, and and not uh dying he then is told actually cleopatra isn't dead she's barricaded herself inside her mausoleum with all of her treasure and that is where she is going to make her last stand so he struggles down to to where she is and uh attempts to access the mausoleum the doors are locked and barricaded so he has to be sort of hoisted in through an upstairs window by Cleopatra and her handmaids and it's there once once he's inside the mausoleum once he's in Cleopatra's arms that he finally dies.
0: Why does Cleopatra lead him to believe that she's killed herself when she hasn't?
1: It's probably because by removing herself from the equation Antony literally has nothing left he has no more allies all of his Roman allies have deserted him and if Cleopatra deserts him too. He he literally has nothing. He has he has no recourse to any uh, armed forces, any financial resources. Nowhere to really go himself. I mean, where where could he even go? He's he's in a city that's under siege, in a royal palace where he is not the king. He is not the prince. So it's uh, it's manipulation, I suppose is is the 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 nice word for it.
0: And in the end, it's her choosing her kind of children and her legacy and protecting that and ensuring the political success of that in Octavian's eyes because Antony's out of the picture over her relationship with Antony.
1: Yes, I think that's that's something that doesn't often get considered because we tend to have this view of Cleopatra as this femme fatale, this sex kitten. The fact that she's a mother isn't generally part of this in, in, in most of the films they, they excise her children completely um, except for cesarean so they so they, they leave um, Antony's children out of it but she is a queen who is the well she's the seventh Cleopatra there there's been a long line of Ptolemaic uh, rulers before her and she wants there to be a long line of Ptolemaic rulers after her She has her son to think about, Caesarean, the son of Caesar. Octavian, he's got the knives out for Caesarean because there can only be one Caesar. Two Caesars is too many. So she knows that Caesarean is in significant danger from Octavian. And she has reason to believe that her other three children, Antony's children, will also be in significant danger from Octavian. So when it comes down to it, if you were to sort of weigh it up, I suppose, on the one hand, you've got Anthony, and this is the man that she loves. And it does it does seem that she does love him because of the way that she laments uh, when when he is dead and all the other little little anecdotes that are included in ancient literature about their life together. You know, there, there's there's one about him massaging her feet, for example. And so, you know, you, you, you get these nice little glimpses of, of their personal relationship. But you've got Anthony on one side and on the other side you've got her four children, you've got her dynasty, you've got her ancestors, her descendants, you've got her kingdom and her life as well and so I I think when it comes down to it it's just a matter of you know weighing up his light you know.
0: And that image of him finding his way to her to be hauled up through the um, first floor window and then die in her arms and I think you use the word um, farcical in the book that on the one hand, there's this kind of, yeah, farcical element of it. On the other hand, it is beautiful. It is tragic. Um, that even after he has presumably discovered that she's lied to him because she's not actually killed herself, he still wants to be with her in that final moment. What What is the source for that story?
1: That's Plutarch. And um, Plutarch has connections um, with, with Alexandria in, in this period of history. So his, uh, his grandfather had friends who who were actually connected to Cleopatra's court, and there there was a lot of other information as well. Cleopatra's doctor, for example, he he wrote up an account of these events. It hasn't survived today, um, but but you know so there, so there were other people. There were plenty of eyewitnesses to all of these events. I mean, the the inhabitants of Alexandria would have been uh, looking on while all of this was happening, just as. Um, we today look on at the, the doings of our royal family and uh, what they get up to in, in public and in private. So this none of this stuff was a secret, uh, hence it finding its way into this sort of official record later in, in the histories and, and in the biographies. Uh, so yes, it, it is very sad. Plutarch's life of Antony is very interesting in this respect because he does go into a huge amount of detail about Anthony's death, and whereas his other lives stop at the death, his life of Anthony continues. It it gives us a whole lot more information about things that happen afterwards and things that happen to Cleopatra. So clearly this is all very, um, it's interesting, but it's also sort of emotive and engaging to the... Greeks and the Romans at the time as well. So they're as moved uh, by this as, as we are 2,000 years later.
0: Mm. Yeah, it is, it is a fantastic story. And that takes us, I think, to our third and final scene in this year, uh, the kind of climax of, of the year's events. So would you like to tell us where we are for our finale?
1: We are still in Alexandria. And there is a question mark actually over exactly where we are. Because We today, we still don't know exactly where Cleopatra's mausoleum was or is. And there are excavations going on in Egypt at the moment, attempting to find it. We we know it was either in Alexandria or or near to Alexandria. Um, But yeah, so so apart from this sort of geographical fuzziness, we we are in uh, Cleopatra's mausoleum uh, in or near Alexandria. And we are about to see Cleopatra and her two handmaidens. It's important to remember the handmaidens because they they often get ignored. Um, Charmian and Iras. And the three of them are about to die.
0: And this is a story which is so kind of well known. It's the asp and the poison and everything. But that's not quite what the history suggests happens. How does Cleopatra decide to kill herself?
1: Well, we don't know. I mean, this is another case of, of the, 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 the gaps in the records, really, and, and the way that myth and fantasy and stories take on a life of their own. So Cleopatra has already tried to kill herself twice. When she was first apprehended, Um, when just after the death of Antony the Romans broke into her mausoleum they apprehended her she attempted to stab herself in the chest and she she managed to stab herself but not fatally and she was patched up by her doctor and then when she was under guard she tried to starve herself and Octavian managed to convince her to eat by threatening to kill her children. Uh, So this is the third time that, that she has attempted to end her life and whereas those previous two attempts seem to have been just very sort of spur of the moment emotional uh, attempts this one is a very calculated one she makes a plan so she asks Octavian for permission to go and pour libations and, and uh, um, mourn Antony, and he grants her this permission she has a very fine meal. She has a bath. She dresses herself in her her fine clothing, her royal regalia, and so she she puts on sort of her all of her queenly attire to present herself in in the in the most uh, impressive regal way. And she she goes to the mausoleum, and somehow, and this is really uh, an ancient locked room mystery. Somehow, she and her two handmaidens die, and. The story is that there was a snake. This is logistically unlikely because if there are three of them, a snake, no matter how venomous, can't bite three people and and have enough venom to kill them all in quick succession and well I mean how, how, how do you wrangle a snake anyway there's this there's this story about you know a big basket of figs and but yeah, so so the snake the snake is 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 questionable. Um, there are also suggestions of poisoned ointment, um, a poisoned hairpin, so something like that very possibly that the three of them um, make use of some kind of poison anyway for it to be quick and um, leave no real visible marks. the The story of the snake seems to have developed because. Uh, in Octavian's Triple Triumph the following year when he exhibits an effigy of Cleopatra because of course he can't exhibit her she's long dead by then um, there's a snake doing something whether that is um, a misunderstanding of the Egyptian royal regalia um, or whether it's some kind of uh, royal symbol or it's, it is an actual snake and it's some kind of provocative um, tableau isn't known but but that's that's where the snake idea seems to have arisen so by the time Octavian realizes what she's done because she sent him a letter to sort of say to him she she's not going to be his prisoner she's not going to be exhibited in his triumph and he gets to the mausoleum the three well two of them are dead Cleopatra and one of her handmaidens are dead the the other one is in the process of dying but she's she's straightening Cleopatra's crown which is a very nice detail um, And so that that is what Octavian is left with. He's left with a room full of bodies and he has to somehow try and salvage the situation. And uh, well, politically, it was probably better for him that she did die because it it meant that he he was then uh, he didn't have to work out what to do with her. Um, Traditionally, when women and children were exhibited in Roman triumphs, they tended to elicit quite a lot of sympathy and he he didn't want Cleopatra appearing sympathetic and and having having to work out what to do with her um and with her out of the way, the children were easier to control, and therefore Egypt would be easier to control too
0: and what are the plans that Cleopatra has made um that have led her to feel like now is the time to take this this action and this like her final act what has she organized for her children? For her dynasty, for her country, or for her empire, I guess. Is it empire or, or kingdom? It, yeah, it's a
1: kingdom. It's it's sort of an empire because one of the things that she was doing through her relationship with Antony was reaccumulating, reacquiring the territory that the Ptolemaic Empire had once possessed. And that this is one of the reasons why Antony was was so unpopular in Rome. He was he was being seen to be giving Roman territory to Cleopatra. Um didn't matter that. It, it was. Uh, it had once belonged to Cleopatra's um, realm. Um, so yeah, you, you can say empire, I suppose, but but it's it's a it's a small empire. It's a, it's a much much more compact than the Roman Empire. Um, so she has attempted to safeguard her children. She had a plan to send Caesarian to India. So he he is sent up the Nile. Um, uh, on his way to um, the port of Berenike to, to sail away. He's intercepted, unfortunately. After, after her, her death, um, he is intercepted and he is executed. So at the time that, that she um, en- ended her life, she, I suppose, was under the impression that he would be safe. He, he, was, he was out of the way. The three younger children, they seem to have been likewise sent up the Nile, possibly to, to Thieves to, to get them out of the way but um, they, they were likewise intercepted and they were brought back. And they were children. And I think it, the, the difference being Caesarian was, was 16, so he was, he was old enough to be considered a man. And he, he was obviously Caesar's son, he was king of Egypt. So he was dangerous, politically dangerous to Octavian. Whereas the three younger children, they are nowhere near as problematic. And the thing about the younger children, as well, that that, uh, probably is in Octavian's uh, mind is that he can make use of them. So as long as he is in possession of the children, nobody else can really claim Egypt. No, no other rogue Ptolemies can come out of the woodwork. No uh, Alexandrian citizens can, can try and mount any kind of resistance. So by, by keeping the children under his control, he is essentially keeping Egypt under his control as well. And and Octavian is, he's a very intelligent, shrewd politician. So he probably thought at that time that there would be some use that he could make of them in the future. And that is, in fact, what he turned out to do um, with regard to Cleopatra Cellini and uh, bestowing upon her the... the client kingdom of Mauritania
0: before we head back to the present as it were I kind of wanted to just dwell on this question of um, Cleopatra Cellini because this is obviously a hugely traumatic and important event in her life this the events that we've just we've just discussed what do you think what lessons do you think she learned from this episode in her childhood
1: I think this episode was absolutely key and foundational to her worldview. She loses everything. She loses her mother, her father, her older brother. She loses extended family, everybody she's basically ever known in her life. She loses her her home, her culture, her birthright, you might even say. And so she has to rebuild uh, she has to find a way of uh, of making something of herself and her life, and so by going well, by being taken to Rome and and living in Rome and seeing this very different political situation, this very different cultural and social situation, women have a very different role in Rome than they did in Egypt it's one of the things that many ancient sources comment on is is how in Egypt, women had a lot more freedom and a lot more autonomy. And in fact, next to Egypt, the kingdom of Kush, um, women ruled that as well, and they led armies in in battle. So she was going from uh, a society in which women held the highest possible positions and had so much agency, to one in which women had a lot less overt power, and there were influential women in, in um, Octavian's family in his circle at this, at this time. His wife, Livia, his sister, Octavia, they, they were very influential. They had power, but they had to wield it in very different ways. And so by witnessing that, by, by seeing how uh, a Roman woman accrued power from her father, from her husband and from her son, basically, uh, she she received a a different sort of political education and i think that stood her in good stead when she became queen of mauritania because she had to rule alongside her husband juba Um, but she does not seem to have been a sort of shrinking violet invisible woman the pair of them seem to have ruled together they seem to have jointly uh, rebuilt their capital city their kingdom and they drew on a lot of cleopatra selene's egyptian uh, heritage to do so uh, mauritania is full of egyptian art and and uh, sort of architecture and juba's scholarship because he, he was a very um renowned scholar in during and after his lifetime um, he talks about egypt a lot about the nile he's got anecdotes about the royal family where could they have come from if not cleopatra Selene? so the pair of them are working together there and uh she is also working autonomously herself, as we can see from her coin issues. So, yes, these these events, I think, are very, very formative for her because she, she also um, has to realise that there is no chance of her reclaiming Egypt. So she has to make the best of it. She She can't go up against Octavian. She can't go up against Rome. She has to work within the system that she is now in. And so... She learns from her mother and her father's mistakes and uh, thrives, really, I think.
0: And her fascinating life is the subject of your excellent book, which um, obviously I encourage listeners to go and, and go and buy when it's as soon as it's out. Before we head back to the present, you're allowed to bring back a memento with you from um, from sort of 31 to 30 BCE. What would you like to bring?
1: depends on how big a a memento I'm allowed because if if I'm allowed a very big memento I think I would bring back Cleopatra's mausoleum because it would just answer so many questions Um, but if if it's a case of what can you fit in your pocket uh, I would bring back Cleopatra's doctor's Olympus is his name I'd bring back his medical notes of this whole period because then we would finally have uh, some answers to the locked room mystery but we would also get a non-roman uh, an egyptian or a, um, a ptolemaic perspective on this episode so a very different perspective than the ones that we currently have
0: that's fascinating and i i mean who knows maybe the mausoleum is out there somewhere to be uncovered does that does that seem likely you said there was archaeological digs for it going on right now
1: um I, I would like to think so. If if it was located in Alexandria, then it's probably underwater uh, because most of the ancient city has subsided into the Mediterranean. If it was located further out, and this is this is where the uh, the um, excavations are, are, are taking place, uh, then it could be found. I I would like to remain optimistic. Uh, you know, never 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 say never.
0: Well, so. Thrilling thought and yeah, hopefully we'll continue to discover lots of um, fascinating evidence from this period long into the future. But in the meantime, Jane, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. It's been so interesting to speak to you about this famous, famous and kind of quite glamorous episode in ancient history. So thank you. Thank you for having me. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Dr. Jane Draycott about the year 31 to 30 BCE and her new book, Cleopatra's Daughter which is published by Head of Zeus and is available to buy now. As ever, remember to check out our website, which is tttpodcast.com. There you'll find lots of information about all of our previous episodes, as well as more information about the one you've just listened to. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.